0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast with me, Liam Bishop, a writer from Leeds, and today I'm joined by another writer who lives in Leeds, Caitlin Stobie. Born in South Africa, Caitlin completed her PhD at the University of Leeds, which is where she now works. She was named by the literary journal New Contrast as a rising star in South African poetry, and since then, she's been the recipient of the Douglas Livingston Creative Writing Competition Prize and the Heather Drummond Memorial Prize for Poetry. Many of her poems are featured in the likes of PM Review and Stand, and they've culminated in this collection, Thin Slices, published by Verve Press. In the collection, Caitlin examines language's ability to capture experience at all levels of life. Indeed, some of her poems seem to examine life in its pre-lingual states. Caitlin does this by utilising poetry in what we might call more traditional forms, but visual forms too. Caitlin joined me from Leeds. Hi Caitlin, thank you very much for joining me today. Can we just start by talking about the title?
1: Since slices arose, um, the first time I encountered the term, I was organising a conference called Beastly Modernisms at the University of Glasgow, and we had organised a tour of the Hunterian collections. So we were being taken around these galleries um, of taxidermied animals, specimens of rocks. And uh, one of the people who was leading the tour was explaining the process of thin slicing these specimens in order to see what was inside. And um, that image stuck with me. And I remember making a note on my phone, thin slicing, thin slices. For some reason, I thought that would, that would make a great poem or that would, that would be something to think about in a poem. But then I, I sat on that thought and realized that the reason why it had stuck with me was because it resonated with a review I read on brain pickings, years and years before of Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. So, But it came back to me and I thought, oh, that's that's interesting because that's thin slicing on a psychological level. That's thinking about uh, how we judge people based on a moment, an interaction. And I saw that several of the poems that I was working on were doing a similar thing. So... I was attracted to the title because it seemed to speak to very tangible questions of ecology, of examining things under a microscope. But then also there was this this broader sense of psychological dynamics that I found appealing. I also was reading Chelsea Girls by Eileen Miles, and that phrase came up. Uh, in a completely different context but one that I also think is relevant so Chelsea Girls is discussing I mean it's crucial to feminism and thinking through gender uh, but also that the particular passage where that comes through is um, discussing eating and I was realizing that several of my poems were unpicking the difficult associations of being a feminist and being interested in environmentalism but also then that may be inflicting one's relationship with eating you know the the dynamics of ethical eating and how that's often gendered
0: and what i really like about it is that it is so something quite visceral about it something that kind of makes you feel it on your i don't know on your skin or within you know within your body when you say it. something we well, don't say it makes you sort of shiver but it kind of makes you think about your kind of you sort of corporality and he talks about some of the various different themes that, that it does tie into there and what i find what ironic is that Malcolm Gladwell, based on what the, the epigraph you provide, it's about the limited perceptions of the world. And there's such an expansive array of, of themes that you talk about there, how it relates to feminism, how it relates to kind of corporality and that kind of thing. Is it, is it the fact that there are various definitions of the world that you're interested in? Or is it more to do with the fact that this collection is more about people that have limited perceptions of the world?
1: I would say it's both. And I think it's part of why I again, the thin slicing appeals to me because I think there's a zooming in on a particular perspective, a particular setting. South Africa, obviously, um, crops up in several of the poems. And I think that's a very specific environment that perhaps is not fully understood unless you've been there, although that could be said for anywhere. So in some, on some levels, I guess also um, your question makes me think about the fact uh, that the reason why this collection went through so many different titles and changes is because i was speaking with south african publishers and british publishers at the same time and a lot of the south african publishers were saying to me there's no market in south africa for poems that are set in leeds um, and then the people in the uk were saying what on earth is this Zulu word? You know, so um, I felt like I had um, two audiences that I had to think about constantly. And I wanted to zoom in on specificities, but I also wanted there to be a sense of the universal, the transcendental, um, relatable issues. So Gladwell's perspective, I think, is useful because we do make quick judgment calls about the person based on their accent, uh, where they grew up, you know, all these, these quick things that we will think when we first encounter someone. So in a way, I was thinking about how the poetry would be received. And I found Gladwell useful for that. And also because several of the poems are limited in their scope, you know, and as much as I think that, oh, I hope that the poems that address South Africa, for example, will be broadening people's understandings and perceptions. They are also just my one person's Perspectives from having grown up in a different environment, so there's that sense of um, how much the narrative speaker can actually do. That I hit up against at several points in the collection.
0: Did you did you sort of meet your limits as a poet? To
1: I definitely tried to experiment with narrative positioning. Right. So there are poems in here that I wrote when I was a teenager, and <laughs> those those are often a lot more classic poetic literary form, thinking about, uh, there'll be free verse, but nothing too wacky. And then the later poems would be things that I wrote in collaboration with the scientists where I was really thinking, okay, well, how can we write about something that's not even human? And how does a human voice fit into that? How can I, as a poet, narrate this without centralizing the narrative or lyric eye? So, I found myself pushing up against language in a way that I wasn't quite expecting.
0: It was, it was felt like you were exploring a time of cultures of limited language, either as people, either as cultures in, I don't mean cultures as sort of peoples and humans, I mean cultures as, you know, biological cultures and that kind of thing, and places where there might not be such a thing as language.
1: It was a recurring conversation with the scientists that I was working with at Leeds. So while I was really shaping this connection together, I was also doing a collaboration with the Beals Research Group at the University of Leeds. They are a group of biophysicists doing very interesting work on multiple things, but broadly speaking, they're interested in engineering uh, the components of artificial life. So it sounds like what they're doing is making artificial cells, it's not that simple, um, but they, they are creating parts of what might be one day artificial cells. So we find ourselves speaking a lot about the words or language that we shared between us as different disciplines. I come from a background where I'm interested in the, the origins of life in terms of conception and thinking about reproductive health. So I was interested in it from the organic sense and they were interested in it in terms of, okay, well, at what point can we say that this little tiny, tiny thing that we've engineered is living? And we were using the same words, but they meant completely different things. So again, I was finding that language, language gets us in a lot of trouble a lot of the time. And I think um, many poets are aware of this. Many poets play around with language for exactly that reason. It was that shared vocabulary that I was interested in in exploring. So for example, there's emergence. Emergence is a concept that rears its head in both the type of feminist philosophy that I was reading and in the biophysical research that these researchers were doing. We kind of came to an understanding of emergence that we we could respect each other's viewpoints. But then there were other words. I think it, it was interesting to find common ground, but then also several of the poems just uh, made me realize that perhaps we need different languages for different, you know, for the sake of specificity. Thinking more broadly about what you said earlier in terms of cultures and pre-linguistic um, narration or if these poems are doing that, I don't know how conscious it was, but certainly in the sense that I was thinking about origins and origin myth and when life begins and then how that's narrated, I can see how that would be could be read when looking through this collection definitely
0: yeah this idea of origin myths i didn't necessarily think it was a critique of a particular origin myth but i felt like you were looking at origin myths as a kind of cultural product as a way to anchor our perceptions of the world what is it about origin myths that so fascinates you
1: i think growing up in south africa you it's a very religious country and although on paper we have a very um, secular, liberal democracy, which surprises some people. (laughs) Um, In practice, there is still a lot of reverence for various myths. And I'm not just thinking of the kind of biblical tradition, although that often is present. And that's why I'm engaging with um, the Genesis and other myths throughout the collection. So that's definitely was on my mind that that received wisdom that had been present growing up and that we also see in literary culture and history as a kind of reference point when discussing life. You know, it's very compelling and easy for people to use these metaphors. Even if you look at research papers in the sciences, you know, a lot of these papers that are discussing potential for creating artificial cells in life are using these tropes of origin myths um, that, are actually quite gendered. And so I wanted to interrogate what that means and not necessarily to dismiss them, but just to be a bit more critical of why we're repeating, what happens when we repeat these myths, when we think about mothering in a certain way, how does that function? What, what are we missing out?
0: What, what does happen, do you think?
1: It's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> I think while I was writing this collection, I was doing a PhD on abortion narratives. So I think that question of what's left out came about because I was reading so many texts that were very explicitly talking about impolite things, things that we we don't often discuss um, for once of not wanting to shock people, not wanting to traumatize people. But what was interesting about the literary texts that I was reading as a scholar was that they were very frank, very bodily, very, and they were unashamed as well. So I thought, okay, that's that's interesting that not many people want to talk about such embodied experiences. How can poetry do what these novelists are doing? In a way, some of the poems are a response to the literature that I was reading while I was writing my PhD.
0: Why Why was it a poetic response?
1: There are several reasons. The first is that from, from a young age, I found that poetry is a good way of condensing thoughts into the basic crux of the issue i knew that there were several themes that i wanted to explore and i felt that a single linear narrative wouldn't necessarily encapsulate everything that i wanted to address um, so the themes that have always interested me are are intersecting i've always been interested in how feminism speaks to environmentalism speaks to medical issues and see them as quite intertwined and i think i think this is now becoming more popular, especially given the last three years, you know, and where we are now because of the pandemic. I think it's become more acceptable to say, without a shadow of a doubt, medical issues are environmental and vice versa. Um, so I, I wanted to use poems because, uh, and this goes back to our discussion of Gladwell. On the one hand, you're zooming in. And on the one hand, you only get to discuss one image or idea, and you only have a certain amount of lines in order to explore it. But on the other hand, it allows you to cut through and make associations that you might not be able to unveil so directly in a longer prose form narrative. Something about the relationship between science and poetry I also find quite appealing. I think that there's an interesting interesting ju- juxtapositions between the two.
0: and biology as a response to uh, origin myths. I guess it seems like even even biology, even science has its own versions of origin myths.
1: I wouldn't want this collection to seem like it's offering science as a solution in juxtaposition to the origin myths that I'm critical of, because um, science is equally cultured. And that was one of the most interesting things of working with the scientists was seeing how you know, there's, there's this um, divide that um, popular culture tends to make between science as being very rational and um, thinking that it doesn't use your creative brain when you're being a scientist, which could not be further from the truth. I've seen people doing all sorts of things in the lab that I would never even imagine of doing. And, and even the writing up of a paper in science is, is creative. It's, you know, it's, it's a form of prose. You need to think through how you're communicating. So it was seeing how the skills that, I learned as a writer are present in the lab, but then also from the scientist's perspective, I think seeing the methodology of writing in a way that um, some of my students would know very well, but perhaps people who have a background in the sciences might not necessarily think of, like, you know, it is work and you do have to be methodological and you do have to test a hypothesis in some ways.
0: One of the kind of recurring figures within this collection is Eve. and I don't know if this, if it's the Eve that we associate with Christianity, but was this something that you noticed yourself? Is it something that came out in the collection or was it an idea that you, that you actually explicitly wanted to tackle?
1: Definitely the, the latter. Um, and yes and no, it is, it is the Eve that we, we read of and think of and see represented countless times, you know, um, in jealousy experiment, I talk about the the way that painters will, you know, not not dare to paint even Adam without a leaf. And there's so I was interested in in depictions of Eve, if there was a re- real Eve, you know. Um, but I also wanted to to draw on that figure and and reclaim that figure and think about um, mythological various figures from myths. So there's also Echo in one of my poems. Um, I wanted to think about the literary heritage of these these figures and how in a way they are almost mothers of a, a feminist tradition if we wanted to reclaim them and think of them that way. So Eve, Eve is interesting obviously because you've got the associations with sin, with sex, an endlessly fascinating figure that you can draw so much out of. Eve is particularly interesting because of the associations with childbirth and several of the poems, again, were written when I was thinking and writing every day about abortion, miscarriage, Childbirth. So I wrote initially about her in one poem, but then I found her, she kept creeping back in. When we when we go to Genesis, we see that um Eve, Eve is punished, and the punishment is bearing in forth, in pain, you shall bear forth children. So the sense that childbirth is punishment, that's um the result of being curious. I mean, there's a there's a bind there between curiosity and knowledge and uh, all these acts that we associate with reading, and then reproduction, gendered reproduction, because man isn't punished in the reproductive act in that narrative. So that's that's the association. Without wanting to get too simplistic about the gender binary or anything like that, I think that um, if you're thinking about childbirth and abortion and narration of these acts, uh, Eve is a fascinating figure to throw into that mix.
0: It, it, this Eve became, or Eve became, such a, a an interesting character with so many dimensions, and I think that's what what came to life. But I, one of the things I do love about them, that re, I think you really brought to light, was this kind of palindromic name that she has, um, very short but palindromic. And there's a lot of a lot of your poems, they do come back on themselves. And you spoke about echo and narcissus, and and some of your poems, you you start them and end them in a similar way. Uh, or visually they kind of refer back to themselves. Is there a wider cultural idea here about Eve and about poetry?
1: When I was ordering the poems, I tried hard to think about how they would speak to each other and echo if I can use that word um, it it speaks to several things I'd say it speaks to the sense of, circularity that of of life you know the this sounds quite trite maybe but the circle of life in a way um repetition i think is always a useful poetic device i use it with my students when they get stuck i say just repeat the start of the last line until something new emerges um so i find it i find it useful for myself if i'm if i'm stuck in a writing phase but i do like a resonance between the first line and the ending I I think there's something quite neat about that a lot of my favorite poems do that and uh, the palindromic words have always appealed to me definitely when I was writing the visual poems I found myself I mean there's the one the um bilayer where I'm trying to explore with repetition and Forming meaning through reversing sentences in a way that I'd never done before and is very challenging, but also rewarding when you find that it does maybe make sense.
0: But yeah, Caitlin, you come from, well, you work with a school of poets who are also obviously lecturers um, and this fantastic creative environment. But, um, but if you would like to see some of the other poets uh, that Caitlin works with, you can see them at Ilkley Literature Festival, which is the second oldest literature festival in the UK. And next year we'll be celebrating its golden anniversary. The festival runs over 17 days in October. Set in the countryside, stones throw from Leeds Bradford Airport. Caitlin will be appearing at University of Leeds Poetry Showcase along with Kimberly Campanello, John Whale, Zafar Kuniel on Wednesday, the 19th of October. And at the time of speaking, you can still get some tickets. And there are still uh, events that have not sold out yet, uh, including with the likes of Mallory Blackman. And I, I know that we've spoken about... Well, we've spoken about Eve uh, and, and the punishment and, and the pain of birth. And you've spoken about some of your previous work, and... Um, um, was this why you were asking questions about attachments?
1: The elements of attachment in the collection arose before I really had an understanding. So one of the earlier poems I wrote was Carried and um, I was looking back over it when we were talking about having this interview and I saw the word attachment there and I thought oh that's that's so interesting because I wrote that when I definitely hadn't encountered attachment theory (laughs) i didn't you know um in recent years there's been a lot of theorization of attachment and um this kind of instagramization let me just make a word for it of of um attachment theory and content and so in more recent years i've been thinking about it as a school of thought in psychology but obviously attachment arises whenever we have an address to the second person, really, whenever there's any um, address and, and I love the second person. I think it's great. <laughs> I think it's great fun to write to, um, you know, right from the perspective of the lyric eye to the second person. And that's another thing that maybe South African poetry does more and is more comfortable with is that that sense of intimacy. I encountered uh, when i first started writing and reading in the uk context a lot of people will say oh well um you know it's, it's quite personal and you might want to think about you know moving away from from so much use of I, for example um, and i do try to to play with that at times but i also want to stand by the fact that i think that that can be productive and there's nothing wrong with a love poem or a poem about mothering or fatherhood um, it's just opening it up with the imagery. That's a challenge.
0: It, no, I was curious when um, when you might have moved over from uh, from South Africa, but yeah, because obviously there is a lot of references to attachment, a lot of references to South Africa, and um, but yeah, either way, you and I wonder if that's why you've talked about the different um, uh, different narrative perspective. You talk about the importance. There's always it feels like there's importance of an other, and it, that's not always gendered either. And I don't know if that was other idea in this idea of attachment do you was it fair to say that there was instances of you exploring what it means to perhaps move themselves away from a culture or particular person?
1: Definitely I think the sense of leaving something behind is it preoccupies many South African writers um you know even even James could see has had his reckoning with that so I think that that's that's has been on my mind for a long time, and it was about the time of the move, really, that I started putting the poems together in a collection. You know, the, one of the earlier titles was really thinking about this question that you raised earlier of language and thinking about uh, the languages that I experienced growing up versus the very, you know, monoglot culture in in the UK. Um, and there's the, some some resonances, but mostly differences. Um, so. Yeah, I think that it would be fair to say that there is a sense of loss in some of the poems or rather mourning certain things, but um, also moments of um, connection and trying to reconcile the two and see see the beauty in both.
0: What do we leave behind?
1: Mm. Connections with others, uh, connection with the landscape. I think there's... I was just speaking with a friend um, earlier, actually, about. The different, the, the kind of climate of South Africa, and um, he was asking, you know, what what were the seasons like in South Africa? Do you even have proper seasons? And um, the, the the answer is, it depends where you are. We have about eleven different biomes, and I miss I miss being able to travel to another biome, an hour's drive, and you're in a completely different type of climate. It's um it's very different to the UK in some ways. Although I have I have gotten I'm leaning into sweater, sweater weather um, this year. I'm trying to you know, embrace embrace this part of the world as well and it's, its own peculiarities. But environment comes through a lot. I think there's there's something very tangible and corporeal when you leave a place that we maybe don't think of. We often think of who we're leaving behind, but also there's a, a physicality of what you're leaving behind.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've lived here 31 years now and, and it doesn't feel any less peculiar, so <laughs> don't worry about that. It only gets more peculiar by the day, I think. Crikey. Well, that's uh, true. <laughs> Could we talk about it? So we have spoken about the other thing. There's spoken about the times you don't mention and other, uh, if you will. But There's this word that comes up a couple of times and it's grandmothering. What, what's the difference? Is this a theoretical concept? Is it a concept that you've applied? It's not something I've encountered.
1: There's this. I'm thinking now of Nicola Perra and and the other kind of um, psychologist thinking about attachment through uh, you know a, a complex lens. So she speaks about generational trauma, which again is you know kind of doing the rounds at the moment. It's it's almost a meme. Um, but the sense that we can't really blame the generation that immediately precedes us for everything because they in turn have been facing their own struggles so it's very easy to make glib um, dismissals of boomers or gen x or whatever else and and to see this divide with gen z and us as millennials um but i i think that that's well a lot of people i think are starting to come to terms with the fact that that is simplistic but it's thinking about why it is that we're in the state that we're in, and realizing that that's that's due to generational trauma and and violences that have occurred for centuries. I mean, again, I'm thinking of Eve, you know this this is not anything new. The sense of people not understanding how to relate, not understanding uh, political inequalities. these are all things that persist and have persisted for thousands of years so when i was evoking the grandmother i guess it started from the place of being interested in the dynamics of south africa where my grandparents generation was so completely different to you know just the the kind of fabric of society was so different to what i was exposed to and, and lived in um it started from that point and then became a broader sense of thinking through mothering and what we do and don't attribute tribute to motherhood as a generational thing. And what might be lacking from one's mother or from one's idea of motherhood is not simply to do with one direct linear attachment. It's a communal thing. This is quite common in South Africa. Um, you know, that trope, it takes a village to raise a child, but we have a sense of communal responsibility and thinking through respect for older generations. Not 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 um to say that they're off the hook, but rather to understand their perspectives. I think that's that's something that I'm very grateful for having grown up in a South Africa where we would think about that.
0: Yeah, when you say so understanding a, a different generation, what what has to what do we get from understanding?
1: I think it helps people. us to understand understanding older generations or different generations helps to understand the way that the current state of affairs and and again i i'm interested particularly in gender uh, so that's why i do gender it as grandmothering and i'm interested in i mean there's also there's references to father time and, and other constructs throughout the the collection but it's this idea of the grandmother i guess because of the matrilineal line and thinking about what we understand as womanhood, what we understand as natural when we think about gender. What what does it mean to be a natural woman? What does it mean to be a woman at all? I like that you picked up on the fact that a lot of the uh, second person address was genderless. That's deliberate. I think that there's a lot of really interesting work being done at the moment about uh, challenging gender norms. And that's really important. But I think it's interesting to also view how the gender norms that we have are just perceived ideas that perhaps older generations were also not happy with, but didn't have the tools to really critique.
0: It just you know, in the word "mother" is the word "other," um, and it, it made me think about you know this idea of um, and this sort of perception around mothering that we place on it, and you and talked about the Instagram Instagramification of um, of attachment um and it really is you know um Winnicott sort of said this it's about the the idea of a good enough mother that's the sort of best we can hope for really Mm -hmm. um not the not the definitely not the perfect because well obviously nobody's perfect and we ask a lot we ask a lot of mothers I think we ask a lot of more of mothers than we do of, of fathers without a doubt
1: yeah I think going back to the discussion of Eve I think that was part of what her figure served to interrogate was what do we ask of women when we ask them to be mothers and what happens when they can't you know for whatever reason or they don't want to be so the actual poem eve is a miscarriage poem and i suppose that was what i was trying to play around with there was the thought well what what if what if even had had a miscarriage (laughs) what if what if um what happens when we we don't adhere to the scripts that we're given whether whatever that gendered script might be
0: I mean what does happen? What do you think happens, Caitlin? What is what is the worst that can happen? Is Eve is Eve is Eve's fate a kind of example of that? Is that the lesson in this?
1: I don't know if I have a lesson to give anyone. I don't know, I don't know if poetry should be giving a lesson to anyone. I think it should be um, causing people to pause and think and maybe reassess what they associate with motherhood, with womanhood, with grandmothers, with grandmothering, with mothering oneself. Because I think that's also part of the discourse that we see on this Instagramification of therapy in general is the sense of your inner child and mothering yourself or parenting yourself. And I think yes, yes, that's useful if you if you know what what parenthood is, what what you know, what to do with that. Um, perhaps less useful is giving people uh, a lesson without them really having understood what they what they want to do first. So I wouldn't, want to, I wouldn't want to say that they're cautionary poems and that Eve's figures. There are no moments of... Um, i like to leave it open, I'd say. I'd like to leave it open for people to decide.
0: Caitlin Stobie, it has been a fascinating discussion and an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, this is the last episode of the series and we've brought it back leads in a way but then we've taken it back out to South Africa and other places which is really nice because we are in it we look out internationally on the Rippling Pages um so Caitlin I'd like to thank you very much for joining me today
1: well thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure to discuss everything with you Liam
0: and that's it Series 3 Beneath the Surface has come to an end we will be back for more episodes soon but until then keep in touch with the Rippling Pages for highlights and upcoming developments Always on social media at Ricklin underscore pages. That's at Ricklin underscore pages. And that's for both Twitter and Instagram. And as always, if you've enjoyed the show, give it a five star rating on your favorite episodes. just boosts the visibility of the episodes and, in turn, visibility of these excellent writers who join us for Thanks very much, and until next time.